We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So I thought after Easter, celebrating like Jesus is king over the grave, he is king over life itself, he is king over all the universe. What a fitting thing for us to do to look at the kingdom of God, which is exactly what Jesus came preaching. And so those are the lines we're going to focus on as we read the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus went preaching the kingdom of God everywhere he went. And so we're going to kind of discuss a little bit, what is that? Because if, if you're like me, like sometimes you get tired of these words that are thrown around all the time, but we never actually know what they mean. Anyone ever watch The Princess Bride? There's that great line where the guy's like, you keep saying that word. I don't think it means what you think it means, right? And I think sometimes we do that in church settings. Like we keep saying these words, we don't really understand what they mean. What does it mean to live in the kingdom? And so Jesus is gonna teach us to pray for the kingdom to come. And he preached that the kingdom had come. What does that mean and what does it look like? And so we're gonna kind of dive into some realities of what we think we see through scripture, the kingdom of God really is. But let's read his prayer first. Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus was just talking about prayer and how not to do it like the hypocrites. And so he says, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Some of your Bibles might have some later manuscripts also say, for yours is the glory and the honor and the power forever and ever. Amen. Later on in Matthew 6, as as, uh, we continue through what's called the Sermon on the Mount, this kind of series of teachings that Matthew lays out for us of these things Jesus said. He also says later in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is in the context of him saying, hey, don't worry about all these things that you feel like you need in life to survive. Don't worry about those things. It's not gonna do you any good, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be taken care of. They'll be provided for you. So Jesus teaches us, pray for the kingdom of God to come. And he teaches us to seek the kingdom of God in all that you do. And anytime you're feeling anxious or worried or scared, fearful, seek the kingdom. And so what is it that we're seeking? What is it that we're looking for? There's another time where Jesus in Luke 17 was teaching and some Pharisees came to him, verse 20, verse 20, they said, uh, they asked by, he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, and he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. So like, you're not going to see it. No one will say, oh, see here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is within you. Or some translations would say, it's in your midst. It's here among you. And what I want to kind of propose to us 
is that the kingdom, and our, our missional community talked about this this week, and Bethany had this great response. She said, the kingdom is where the king has dominion. Where the king, Jesus, it's his domain. He has dominion and authority. And so when you, like we had people do last week, say, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I'm submitting to him to follow him as king. The kingdom is now within you because he has dominion over your life and over your heart. And when we, as a community of people saying we are following Jesus, gather together, the kingdom of God is here among us because we have given him dominion over us as a community. And when we go out into the city and when we engage in the things that Jesus has taught us to engage in, when we engage in the world around us in a way that we're bringing good news of the kingdom and we're subduing it, like he called the first two humans to do as his kingdom representatives, then the kingdom of God is among us. And again, lots of great flowery language, but like, what does that mean, right? Jesus used a lot of different parables to talk about what the kingdom of God is, what it's like, and we'll talk about some of those. But I think what I want us to see this morning is though it is really hard to nail down and describe in concrete examples, this is what the kingdom looks like. Uh, But there's what I think we can see is there are some realities of what it means to live in the kingdom, And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at seven realities of God's kingdom because seven is a holy number, right? If we're talking about the kingdom, we got to have seven of them. Had to make it work. No, it was was actually really easy. Uh, And they're they're actually not really hard to understand. uh, When I say them, you're going to be like, duh, Chris, right? Uh, But they're good reminders for us to remind ourselves what it actually is means when we say we want to live in God's kingdom. We want to pray for his kingdom to come here on earth, here in Phoenix, here in this room, and here in my life, just as it is in heaven. And that that is actually possible and that Jesus is actually doing it. And so if you are a note taker, this is a great time to take notes because we're going to give you a list of seven things, okay? And so here's the first one, and this is really obvious. The kingdom has a king. Amen? That's, that's an easy one. It's a, it's a gimme, right? The kingdom has a king, but here's the thing. It's not you. It's not me. It's not our president. It's not your political party of choice. It's not our nation. It's not our doctrine. It's not our families. When I, when I first was thinking about this and praying through this, it was election time. And I was actually driving around our city and I saw these signs, one on each corner. And what was funny is they were both opposing. Like one was of the Democrat party, one was of the Republican party. And they both said on it under their little slogan there, America first. Like they were both going for it after the same thing, just in two completely different ways, right? They both said America first. And I just want to say like, no, no. America is an empire. It's a kingdom that will one day fall. Spoiler alert. Hate to break it to you. It has to. Because the kingdom of God will rule and reign over all things. And so this is not 
America first. This is not my family first. This is not me first because I'm king over my life. This is not even our doctrine first and, and our community, missio first. No. Jesus first. Jesus is king. Jesus has rule and reign over all things in the universe, my life included and yours as well. And when Jesus was going to be with the Father after he rose from the grave and he was inviting his followers into this mission of going and preaching the kingdom to other people and inviting others into it, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king. Therefore, go and obey what I've taught you and teach others to do the same and invite them into the identity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And remember me, King, Jesus, my authority, all my power, it is with you until the very end. So that's the first thing we need to remember is like we're not in charge of our own lives or how things go down around us. Jesus is King. Again, Simple concept, right? But isn't that so hard for us to actually live out? To like flesh that out in our lives? Isn't that so difficult? And the call is to repent from trying to make ourselves or anything else king. Right? And we, we looked at that as our journey through Lent, that the people, when in Judges it says that they had no king and they did whatever was right in their own eyes. Like they were making their own selves king, right? And then they got to the point where like, okay, we can't do this. So they said, let's give us a human king. And God was like, you know what a human king is going to do? They're going to take all your crops. They're going to take all your women. They're going to, it's not going to go good. And they're like, we don't care. We need a human king. Like we need to repent from trying to make anything or anyone else king and submit our lives to the authority of Jesus. And again, as I said earlier, that's something we need to do every single day. Every morning we wake up, this day belongs to you, God. My body belongs to you, God. Would you have your way? Which leads us to our second reality of the kingdom. The kingdom has a king and the kingdom also has a way. In Psalm 1, it talks about two different ways of living life. Uh, and it kind of gives us these examples of trees to kind of show what that's like. And one, the way of the righteous is like a tree firmly planted by a riverbank and it's being nourished and it's flourishing. But then the other way, the way of the wicked, it says, is not like that. Instead, it's like chaff that's dried up and dead and wilted off of the root of the tree that it was on and it gets blown away with the wind. It can't stand firm. These two different ways is actually drawn out over and over again throughout scripture, these two different ways of life. And so we are called to follow Jesus in his way of righteousness. And what does that look like, right? What does that look like? Uh, Proverbs 14 says this in verse 12, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. So what it looks like is not trusting our own understanding fully. This seems right and good, but I've submitted my life to Jesus as king. And so what does he have to say about this? What does the wisdom of God say about this? What does scripture say about this? Let me check with my community of other people 
learning together to follow Jesus and his way, but mostly let me look to the life of Jesus. And Jesus tells us this in John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I made a really terrible joke earlier this morning. I'm going to repent of publicly right now. We were talking about protein. And I was like, what if there was a protein company with the name The Way, W-H-E-Y, The Truth and the Life, right? I was like, I bet there'd be a lot of Christians who would buy that. They would eat that up, even though it's sacrilegious. So I'm just going to repent of that joke right now. Uh, Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. He is the path to what is right and what is good and what is beautiful and what is perfect and what leads us to living. And so what is the way? It's, it's following in Jesus's footsteps. How did he live? There's a lot of other roads diverging out from that pathway and they all look really good at times, right? It's like, hey, hey, come over here. And there's a sign that's like, you can come find what you're looking for this way all kinds of billboards marketing towards us, come this way and that way. And it seems good for a moment. And then you end up like the Samaritan story Jesus told where you're beaten up and bruised and bleeding out on the side of the road. Jesus has picked you up from that side of the road and he has tended to your wounds and he has brought you into the right path. Would you continue to follow him? The third tenet is this, the third reality is that the kingdom has a physical place. And this one is really important to me because I grew up thinking that one day, what, what this faith is, what this story is right here, and I didn't grow up thinking it was a story, it was a list of rules to follow, so that one day I too can float on the clouds in heaven, maybe playing a harp really beautifully, I don't know, this looks like how people play harps in my mind, I don't know. Maybe playing a harp and like having a halo on my head and some wings and like floating around in some ethereal, not real, tangible-ness. Like I was gonna say body, but not even a body. Just floating around in the sky and from like what I was told, like you sing the same song over and over and over again. It sounded really boring, to be honest with you. But that's not the story that this Bible tells us. The story is that God, who created the heavens and the earth, actually dwelt among the humans on the face of the earth in the very beginning. And he called it all really good. And and a doctrine or a theology or a way of understanding this story that says that somehow our sin could undo everything God did and just obliterate it, and God would have to come up with a plan B one day. Okay, these bodies I made good. Okay, let's get rid of those. This earth I made good. Let's get rid of that. What does that teach us about this God, the creator of the universe, the king over all things? And I don't even know exactly where we got that from because if we look to Revelation, you could fast forward there with me if you want right now. Revelation 21, at the very beginning, it says this. First verse. John got a vision. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so even if our theology is like the earth is destroyed, what is God doing? He's making a new one. 
But actually the, the language there in the Greek is better translated to renewed. We could argue that later. That's fine. That's, that's a side topic right there. But what God is doing is the old ways of the earth are passing away. And he's restoring and renewing. Uh, I, I get a lot of this, by the way, from that same word that's used in First Peter when it talks about that the earth was destroyed with a flood and there was a new earth. It was, it's the same physical planet, right? But the old ways that everyone was doing everything that was right in their own eyes and they were constantly sinning against God, that was done away with. And there is a renewed way of living on the earth. And he says, in the same way, God one day will renew the earth with fire. And so I, I truly believe what this story is telling us is that God doesn't go to a plan B. He doesn't have to. He's in control of all things. And he is actually at work to restore this planet. Now, again, we could, we could debate that, and that's fine. Let's set that aside for a moment and go, even if this is destroyed, what God will do at least is create a new earth, a physical, tangible place for us to dwell in, in physical, tangible bodies forever. Jesus himself rose from the tomb in the flesh, in the body. When he appears to his friends, they touch the holes that pierced his limbs. They put their finger in the side where he was pierced. It's the same body that he walked around on this earth in. And he sits down one time and he eats fish with them at a campfire because he's not just floating around ethereally. And if Jesus dwells eternally in that body, why would we think following in him we would come to some other conclusion for ourselves? Jesus fully identifying himself with humanity and then humans becoming a different thing? No. No, we will live embodied, flesh and bone, but with bodies that will not feel pain, that will not hurt, that will not cry, that will not weep with sorrow, that will not break down, that will not go bald or gray. We will live eternally in a real place, eating real good food and hanging out with the real Jesus. It's going to be amazing. And I want us to see that this is one of the important realities of the kingdom. Because if we have this theology that, you know, one day this is all going to blow up anyway, then why would we care for it? When God called the humans in the very beginning of the story to do just that, to care for and tend to the earth he made. And so part of living in the kingdom of God means we show up and we tend to and we care for God's good created world as a picture of the kingdom that will be fully made new and restored one day. Jesus is ultimately bringing that. But we get to be little foretastes of it, little previews. And that real physical place for the kingdom, it's where heaven and earth overlap and reunite again. Revelation 21 Sorry, I got a little carried away. I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. 
If you were to skip down to verse 9, you see uh, an angel, a messenger from God, comes and takes John and says, hey, come check, out, come check out this city, right? He comes and he shows him what the city looks like, the city Jerusalem. And it has all kinds of Eden imagery. Everything that's put in that place is calling you back to the instructions God gave for the temple to be built in the Old Testament, which is calling you back to the things that existed in the garden in the very beginning. God is restoring. He's restoring us back into our home where heaven and earth overlap and God dwells with us. Amen? The next two kind of go together. And so uh, the next one is this. The kingdom has a united people. There's over 50 times that the Bible and the gospels and in the epistles, the letters from the apostles to the churches, say this phrase to how to treat one another, right? And so you can go through those and it's like, be devoted to one another, love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, have the same mind as one another over and over and over again. There's this expectation that you, as you live in the kingdom of God, are doing it with others, not just you and God as a side quest, right? A little solo project. But we are entering into a kingdom that is filled with people. People just like us who wants to were on that side of the road beaten and bleeding out. Who wants to were living after our own ways and trying to build our own kingdom. And just like us, the other people sitting in this kingdom with us have been rescued by the king and brought in, and now we're all striving together to figure out what it looks like to follow that king together. We are called to be united. And the second one goes with it. The kingdom also has a diverse people. Revelation 7, 9 says this, that when he saw the new heaven, new earth, when he saw it recreated, when he he saw a vision of what that looks like, he says, every tribe, tongue, and nation was present. Every type of people group was present. Think about the diversity that comes with that. Think about the different cultures existing. Think about the different ideologies that once existed and took place. Just think about this room right here. There are a lot of different stories in this room. And our goal is not to whitewash those and kind of make us all synonymous with one another, to make us all look the same, that we all listen to the same music and we all dress similar, we all raise our kids the same way. That's not what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom is like a ragtag bunch of people coming together as a melting pot. And all the different beauties coming and mixing together, all the different messes too, And yet as we come together, still being united around Jesus, yet diverse in so many other ways, those things that are messy start to get worked out as we submit them to the king. But you don't lose the uniqueness about you. And in the very beginning, when God created humans, the first thing he said is not good is that the man's alone. And what does he do? He doesn't create someone or something that is exactly like him. Like in every sense, they were one and yet also distinct. 
from how their bodies were made to how they thought their own thoughts and felt their own emotions. Two distinct and diverse people, yet coming together in unity as one under the authority of their creator. That's a small little picture, a preview of what the church, the kingdom of God will look like one day. That a bunch of distinct and unique people coming together, united under only one important thing, Jesus is king. How do we follow him together? And so we're called as an expression of the church today to be again, a preview of that kingdom. How do we live with one another, though we're diverse, though we're distinct, yet united under the thing that really matters? And again, I'll I'll say it, not united around our preferences of how worship goes on a Sunday morning, not united around our political views, not united around how we think parenting should take place, not united around how we dress, what we listen to, what we watch, not united around the food that we eat, not united around all these other things that are so secondary, but united around Jesus has saved me. I was once lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. I was dead and he has made me alive. Hallelujah, praise the Lord together. Let me hear your story. Let me hear what God has saved you from. Let's unite around that together. All of these things that we've been talking about uh, fly in the face of, and they contradict, they contrast other kingdoms of this world. To say that the kingdom has a king and it is Jesus, as we said, goes against the idea that we are king over our own lives. You do you, right? Whatever feels right to you. To say the kingdom has a way, it's the way of righteousness, it's the way of Jesus, flies in the face of this universal kind of mentality. Like anything's true to you if it's true to you, right? To say that the kingdom has a physical, tangible place, heaven and earth overlapping and reunited, it flies in the face of both this old view that I got of like, well, one day the world's just gonna blow up anyway, so who cares about it? And also in this idea of like, well, you know, we gotta care for this earth because it's all we got, right? Both of those ideas, it's like, no, no, no. God is at work to care for his creation, and yet we partner with him in that. You see, all, all of this is, is against these other ways. The kingdom has united and a diverse people it flies in the face of you got to find your tribe and dividing over all kinds of other ideas and ideologies to find people who are just like you. No, the kingdom is diverse and beautifully unified at the same time. The next one, the sixth one, the kingdom has a movement. Now, constantly when Jesus is giving teachings and parables of what the kingdom's like, he says the kingdom is like, and he would say things like a seed, that's planted and it grows, or yeast put into dough. And what does that do? It causes it to expand and grow. Or the kingdom is like wheats that are growing up even among the weeds, right? So he's using all this imagery that is constantly moving and growing and expanding. And when he, again, goes to his disciples in Matthew 28, as before he goes to be with the father and he says, I'm inviting you into this movement of the kingdom. He says, as you go through life, 
You have a work to do. Make disciples. Teach them everything I've taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a movement, and you're invited into it. Coming into the kingdom doesn't mean you come and you sit down and you have a nice seat at the front row of the show, right? It doesn't mean that one day you'll have a ticket to get into paradise. It means that you are joining into a movement, a stream that is moving and flowing. And Jesus is the one who's ensuring that that movement happens. He's the one making sure that growth for his kingdom is taking place. He's the one making sure that it will expand. And that as Habakkuk 2 says, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover all things just like water covers the sea. And yes, that's meant to be redundant. Everywhere. So Jesus is making sure that happens. But we're invited to join him in that movement and in that work. We get to step into it. Now, if that sounds terrifying or daunting to you, let let me reassure you what Jesus reassured them in that moment. All authority and all power in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and he is with you. You have the Spirit of God. The kingdom of God is in our midst because the Spirit's at work in you and in us to join in this movement of inviting other people in so the kingdom will continue to grow and expand. And I want to leave us with one last final good news statement of the kingdom that the kingdom has the victory. It's not up to us. Yes, we're invited in. Yes, we get to play a part. But it's not on your shoulders. Jesus said, if you're, if you're weary and weak, come to me. You'll find rest. Take my yoke upon you. And that was this thing that they would lay over two oxen as they would walk through and plow the fields, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, come join with me. I got it on me. Take it upon you. And Jesus says, it's easy and light for you, isn't it? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why? Because Jesus bared all of it already. Jesus already claimed the victory on that cross when he said, it is finished. Jesus already did the heavy lifting for us. And yes, his kingdom will come. His will be done on this earth as in heaven because he has secured it. And how did Jesus get his victory? By fighting for it? No, by laying his life down, didn't he? Like, we're not called to fight for the kingdom. Put away your sword, Peter. That's not how we're doing this. Jesus claimed victory over all things, securing the kingdom of God, restoring and reuniting heaven and earth for all people by giving his life over to the kingdom of darkness subverting it, and then conquering it by rising to new life. And so we too experience victory actually when we give our lives over. But here's the good news. You don't have to give your life over to the kingdom of darkness. You don't have to give your life over to death. We give our lives over to the king as we once again submit ourselves daily, dying to ourselves, saying, Jesus, you're king, when we give ourselves over, not fighting for our rights, not fighting for things to be the way we think they should be around us, but giving ourselves over to Jesus, we will experience a glimpse of the victory that he has already obtained for us. 
In Revelation 22 now, let me skip to that and we'll close this out. Actually, first I want to read to you Daniel 7, where we're getting how uh, this kingdom does have the victory. Daniel 7, Daniel gets this vision, verses 13 and 14. He says, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man, which is what Jesus constantly called himself when he walked this earth. One like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. That's the name for God, Yahweh and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. His kingdom has the victory. All other kingdoms must fail. And this, by the way, is one of the texts where likely we get the end of that prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the honor and the glory and the power forever. Amen. And so John ends his vision with this. Verse 20 of Revelation 22. He who testifies about these things says, this is Jesus, I am coming soon. And John's response, amen. Come King Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. This is the kingdom we're invited into and we say yes and amen. Jesus, would you come quickly, bring your kingdom in fullness. But in the meantime, thank you that you are with us and you help us to show a glimpse of it to the watching world around us. I wanna close with reading for us something that invites us into this very thing. It's from Philippians 2, verses five through 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus or King Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. This is how he got victory. By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly